All right, Josh. Thanks for being here today, brother. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Heard great things about you from from Bert. Um, uh, I started paying attention to you. Um, probably, I I'm one of those late onset hunter guys. So yeah, yeah. I spent uh, you know the last thirty years coaching football. Uh, coached ten years of college ball, and then when I started my own businesses, I still coached high school for about another. 20 23 years so it's the first year i'm not coaching football and like somehow the hunting thing just like bit me last october and i've been paying attention to it ever since and paying attention to you and your brand um i kind of wanted to start with this instagram post you put up back in february if you don't mind I yeah love go this. ahead um this was the map i guess after a big drop uh, showing where all the knives came from and said, let this map be a lesson from last night's drop. To those of you who said my MKC was not going to work, you have to use China. You're a small regional brand. Hunting is too offensive to build a brand on. Instagram will censor you. You're crazy for quitting a union job. There's a, a long list. Um, you won't find enough my employees in Montana. I say we're just getting started. Wait till you see what we've got planned. Get on board or get out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Man, I love that. Um, what that that was less to me of uh, almost like kind of a challenge to a lot yeah. of people that that had told you probably for a long time that this isn't really going to work. Where did that came come from, and like how long had you been hearing that? Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting actually. One of my what I would consider pretty good friend, knife maker, uh, his name is Mike, and he. When I was telling him about my idea uh, uh, for MKC, um, <clears throat> he was just—he was showing me some knives that he was doing over in China, uh, some folding knives. Mm -hmm. And he was just—he was one of several knife makers that said, "Like, man, you know, there, there's some pretty good quality being made over in China, and you know, there's no way to compete against these companies making stuff in China. And, and like, all, just basically gave me a list of a hundred reasons why it's too hard to do it in the U S and, uh, they're not entirely wrong from the standpoint that it's not easy. Uh, it would actually be a lot easier probably to present some engineer plans for a knife, some exact perfect drawings, and then just send it off and wait for them to show up at my door and then try to market them and sell them. Um, but that's not, that's, and, and honestly, maybe, maybe I'd make more money that way, but that's just not the way I envisioned, uh, you know, a company that I lead that, you know, I, I'm a knife maker. I've been a knife maker for 30 years and to then turn around and from making custom knives to just basically printing them in China, um, that does nothing for our community that does nothing for, you know, our country, uh, it doesn't do anything, you know, for, for good jobs. And it, it, it's just none of, none of the things that I feel like are important. Uh, does it, does it actually accomplish other than maybe, maybe making somebody some money. And there's also no story there. Like now then you're just trying to tell people why your Chinese made knives are better than the other Chinese made knives. So, uh, there was that. And then there were just a lot of friends that, thought I was absolutely crazy for quitting a, you know, a job where you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year. And, um, 
paid vacation and benefits and all that. And, and again, they're not necessarily wrong. Like there's a lot of people that quit their jobs and try something and it doesn't go well, but uh, I don't know. I just felt like, I felt like it was possible. And I, and I, I hate, it bothers me when people say like the American dream's dead, uh, you know, that the United States is completely unfair. You can't get ahead. Like, I, I think it definitely is tough. It's hard. But is it any harder for us today than it was for my great, great grandfather who took a train out West and just picked out a chunk of land and started farming it? Like, I don't, I don't, in fact, I could argue that a lot of day, time, a lot of, in a lot of ways today, it's easier than it was back then. Yeah. I think, you know, from my perspective, a lot of that comes down to what people's expectations are today, you know, and what they, they think is too hard versus what you know our grandparents thought was too hard and even maybe our parents um you know i know i'm i'm from a family of farmers on both sides as well so um you know i know where that comes from it's one of the things that that i find interesting about you and montana knife company that i've kind of seen a lot in the hunting industry but even in some other industries is that the the resurgence of american manufacturing seems to be coming back a lot from small businesses as opposed to large corporations, which I think is really neat uh, because you're able to, to establish a different kind of brand as opposed to like a big corporate brand. Yeah. And I, I think large corporations are generally based off of, of one thing, which it's, it's just entirely the bottom line and it's right. margins and it's money. Yeah. And I think a lot of smaller businesses, mm -hmm. uh, one, maybe they don't even have like, like for myself, for example, even if I wanted to make knives in China, I don't, I don't have those connections and I don't necessarily have those, uh, the, the expertise or know how to go vet a Chinese manufacturing company about how to make stuff for me. But number two, I think small companies are generally just, they're, they're individuals who have a deep love for our country. And it's not just about the bottom line. Like, I've always said, if I can just make a good solid living doing what I love and I can do that the rest of my career, that's, that's a win versus doing a job that maybe I don't want to do. Um, the other thing with American manufacturing, it's interesting, like I'm, you know, starting to look at property for what would be our next move for our next building. And I was talking to a guy locally here that has a piece of property uh, that I'm talking about with him. And you know, we talked about what's good for a community. You know, Frenchtown is a small town. It's a couple thousand, few thousand people. Uh, mostly it's a bedroom community to Missoula. Everyone actually that lives out here pretty much works in Missoula. Mm -hmm. Suburb kind of. And on his piece of property, I asked him what he would rather see. Would he rather see, this is a piece of commercial ground right along the interstate, right off the exit. Would he rather see let's say two or three hotels and maybe a McDonald's or a Starbucks, uh, kind of the typical stuff you see at an interchange, uh, for our town, would you rather see that, which that's going to, that's going to hire, you know, a hotel is going to hire 15, 20 employees at probably as low a wage as they can possibly pay them and maybe pay a manager a decent wage. Or on that same piece of property, would you rather see a manufacturing company that has goals of hiring five or 600 employees? Uh, some of those people, entry-level wages, a lot of those people at a mid-level wage, 
and, and, and also a bunch at a very, very high wage engineers, uh, business managers, you know, marketing people, stuff like that. A, a ton of jobs that are 80, a hundred, $150,000 a year. Um, and also a place where high school kids can go get a summer job, like assembling knives for, for the summer. Um, we have summer kids right now that, uh, well, a couple of my kids that are off on break right now for summer from high school. And then a couple kids that are off on break for summer from college. And they're just temporary help until August or September. Um, for that same piece of property, if you put manufacturing on it, it can potentially add and bolster an incredible amount of revenue for this, this valley, for our town, plus the school system. And that money will be kept here locally versus uh, a Hilton hotel chain that's going to hire 15 or 20 low-level employees and all that money is going to go away. And they're going to give a shit about the, the local peewee football team or softball team or 4-H club, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I find myself just in the last probably 10 years, especially paying a lot more attention to where my money goes, uh, making sure that it goes to every opportunity I can to local businesses. Um, if it's not a local business, trying to make sure it goes to businesses that are using mostly American source products, uh, American made products. Um, so those are, I think that's awesome that you're doing that. And I, I think the, the brand itself is so cool. Um, before I kind of go into that, I would love to hear the story about your grandparents because I'm I'm really intrigued by people who settled the West. Where did they come from, and and what did that story look like? Uh, you know, my my grandma. I think she uh, her family was based out of Ohio, um, and then uh, my 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 grandfather's family. I think was was uh, based out of New York, if I'm not incorrect. And it was actually interesting. My great, great grandfather, uh, wanted to marry my grandmother, great grandmother. And, uh, uh, basically he didn't have a pot to pee in. And, and I think my, my great, great grandmother had, uh, parents that had high expectations for who she was going to be married to as most fathers do for their daughters. And so, uh, her dad would not, agreed to let him marry her until he had, uh, his own property and his own like respectful, respectable, uh, way of life income. So he took a train out to Southeast Colorado and got off the train and, and ended up homesteading or, or laying claim to a, a pretty massive amount of property, a big giant ranch that at the time looked great to him because the grass I think was you know, the stories are the grass was three or four feet deep and it was like 80,000 acres. And he thought he'd be able to run, you know, uh, tons and tons of cattle. And so he laid claim to this land and then he went back and showed her dad the deed. And he then agreed to let his daughter marry him. And so they came out, they dug a, a hole in the ground and they built a dugout home. Uh, it's still actually kind of there. It's, it's actually collapsed and caved in but it's still there the hole is uh and the rubble on top of it but they built probably three feet or so down four feet down in the ground and then about four feet on top of the ground was their first home and then later on they ended up building a small uh homestead next to that one all above ground 
and then later on in life, uh, my grandma and my grandpa, you know, moved away from that particular location and just moved across the ranch a couple miles and built a, a house there where my dad was born. Uh, as it turns out, that was very, very dry country. So once the cows ate all the grass, it didn't grow back. <laughs> and they, they ended up with just a super dry, hard way of life, which my uncle still runs the ranch. It's a lot less acres now, but it's still pretty sizable. Is that um, local? Is that Southeast where you Colorado? Are? Oh, Southeast Colorado. Okay, that's right. Yeah, and uh, and it, it's it's funny because my grandma ended up having 16 kids. My dad has 14 uh, or 15 brothers and sisters, uh, 11 girls and five boys, and they're actually all still alive today. Um, it's actually quite that's incredible. Amazing. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, yeah, but uh, very difficult uh way of life out there on, you know, in the middle of nowhere, basically creating, I asked my grandma what the best invention in her life ever was. Cause she, you know, she grew up in that like 1920 to she died in her nineties. So 1920 time frame to, uh, the late teens of, of the two thousands. And, uh, asked her what the best invention that she ever, like what had the biggest impact on her and she said, for, without hesitation, it was a telephone. She said to be able to call a doctor for her kids, to be able to call her sister in another state, to just be able to communicate when you're on a farm in the middle of nowhere was 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 massive. Um, I always I always admire those people from that that generation because they literally went from you know World War II time frame to podcasts and FaceTime and you know, they've seen the invention of the internet and cars and electricity and telephones and like all the stuff that became commonplace for all of us, you know? Yeah. No, my, I, I asked my grandparents that, um, before, and they're both passed. My grandma said the same thing. She said the telephone, my grandfather said the combine. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, but they had a, you know, about 4,000 acres that they farmed with, but it was a community, right? I mean, just like a lot of what what I see in in the hunting community since, you know, my my community forever has been this football community, this coaching community, which is interesting because they're really good guys and you really have a lot of camaraderie. But at the same time, especially like in the college level, there's a lot of competition and they kind of will help you to a certain extent. And, but the, everyone's always kind of worried about, you know, whether they're going to burn, you know, a contact or something helping you that they can't cash in on later, which that was one of the things that kind of drove me out of it after a while, but hunting and the brands that are associated with hunting and the people like I've been really blessed to get tied into, to Bert, um, to Joe miles, to, to a few guys that, um, are really big in the community. And it's, it's amazing how giving, uh, and willing people are, you know, who don't even know you to help you learn something, you know, which is what I'm trying to do right now is learn a lot about it. Um, uh, and it seems like in listening to your podcast and, and watching you build your brand, like that's such a huge part of your company is the community behind it. Yeah, for sure. That, uh, that it's massive. And honestly, that was kind of the community when I grew up making knives, like the custom knife makers, 
you know, at knife shows and whatnot, this was pre-internet where you had to go to shows to sell knives. Um, unlike other art forms, they were actually very open and very sharing and would, would tell their competitors, uh, quote unquote, um, uh, how, how to do different things and teach different techniques and which made their, you know, their competition better. Uh, but it was kind of a, you know, rising tide lifts all boats situation. And, and in the hunting world, we've been very, very lucky. I think we're also kind of fortunate for what particular uh, product we make. You know, a knife is a lot like Yeti cooler. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't really compete with camo companies and backpack companies and optics companies. We're kind of a complimentary, complimentary, uh, piece of gear that goes along with any of that stuff. Uh, you know, so I don't think we've been very threatening to, to most people in the outdoor brands and, and the outdoor world's just been incredibly helpful to us. And I, and I, I hear what you're saying. Cause I, my cousin was in college football coaching for a long, long time. And he just got out in the last couple of years. And quite frankly, I think got passed up for a couple of head coach jobs uh, that he really should have had. And it really got to a point where it was more of who, you know, and politics and what, even with a lot of these schools, like, well, this guy, we're going to hire this guy because he's coming from this area of the country where we want to recruit. So, you know, even though you might be more qualified to actually coach, this guy comes with, uh, a black book of or a Rolodex of of connections that can help the school, and it's just it gets it gets kind of kind of dirty feeling. Honestly, it felt like to me just watching from the outside. Yeah, it was. I think, and if he just got out recently, you know, I got out. Uh, I was doing it ninety two to early two thousands, and then I got out then just same kind of thing. You know, I was tied into certain people and if those people don't get jobs when you're young, then you're kind of, you know, I was working 90 hours a week, making 28,000 at a job that, you know, 400 other people wanted. So it was like, but there were only certain jobs that paid back then. The, the industry pays a lot better now, but the, just, the yeah. Company. And even that being said, like, especially with a college coaching level up here, I, I don't think those guys are getting paid real well if you're not you know, one of the top two or three jobs. And you're right. If you're not from a specific coaching tree, then all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're passed up and yeah, he just got out like two years ago. And what school know, is he at? The transfer. Uh, he was at Montana state. Oh, okay. Um, he bounced around like all college coaches do from right. high school coaching and then bounced all the way up through all the different levels of, of colleges. Um, was a head coach at a, uh, at a frontier school. And then, and then was assistant head coach at, uh, at Montana state and also did special team stuff. But, um, it was, uh, you know, he was very professional. He'd never complained to me. I just things I observed and, uh, uh, and I saw the hours that he put in, which is just ridiculous. It's, um, it is insane. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just insane. And, um, uh, you know, what, what also changed so much too was uh, the transfer rules and the recruiting and just everything about from the time that he started, you know, 25 years ago to today, it's just night and day different, you know? Yeah. I mean, you used to have to recruit a kid, but then once you got him on campus, you were good. Now you've got to recruit him every year and keep him there. 
you know, because somebody's offering them a bunch of money to transfer, even if they haven't even done much for them already, you know? Yeah. Especially if you're at a school, like in Montana, if you have a kid that ends up being a real star standout, it's almost guaranteed that he's going to jump to a bigger school. Yeah. Those smaller, the, like you're right, the FCS schools and some of those, you know, even if it's a smaller FBS school, if they're really, really good, they're going to get recruited to jump up. Yeah. Um, so when I was out, Bert and I, I were out at the farm uh, over at the end of last week um, doing some 3D and he drove me by the building uh, that he said you, I guess it was either where you were displaying your knives. Um, but he kind of told me really briefly the story, you know, about how you had been doing this for a long, long time, obviously, but at that winter strong event was really kind of the impetus for you to, to really hammer this thing. And the thing that I've kind of heard as I've listened to you talk about that story, not just about winter strong, but also about kind of having the motivation or at least the, the belief to do this is, is your wife is Jess. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about your partnership because I've experienced some of the same things, you know, in my life, but it seems like some of these really big decisions, she's been a really big part of. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't have a supportive wife in college football coaching, then, uh, it's not going to work well for you with the hours (laughs) that you guys put in. Um, but yeah, no, this was an idea that I, MKC was an idea that I had, you know, I registered the name with the state of Montana when I was 19. Um, you know, but I didn't launch it till I was 39. And there was in the cocoon for a while. Yeah. There was several factors that, uh, personally, professionally, different things of why I didn't launch it, uh, for a long time. And I talked about it, uh, um, to a ridiculous, uh, amount, different, uh, different, uh, crazy degree of, of talk and no action. I think, uh, a few of my buddies I talked to about it so much probably thought I was never going to do it. And I was just all full of shit. But some of that was, you know, I, I, I wasn't necessarily, I felt like married to the right person when I was uh, early on in my life and, and trying to f- decide to build this brand. And, you know, I ended up, ended up with four kids and, div- and divorced and, you know, four amazing kids and all that. But when I was divorced, I was just kind of a single guy just doing the single dad thing and and doing the lineman stuff uh, for the power company. And when I met my, my now wife, Jessica, uh, as we got pretty serious, I told her about my idea of, of Montana knife company. And we talked about it a little bit. And, and when we were married, you know, I was talking about it some more and she was just like, well, you should quit your job and do that. Like her, her attitude was just like, basically you should just bail off and do it. And have you like, ever had anybody tell you that before? No, not, no, not, not like not with my ex-wife and, and uh, no. And, you know, honestly, when you have four young kids um, that's a huge time responsibility, a huge responsibility. So when I was single, I definitely didn't feel like I had the time to try to, to launch a brand. Um, and she had that attitude of like, I've got the house and the kids, you go to the shop and you go build this company. And it was definitely her that, that was like the driving factor that I, I finally felt like I had somebody behind me that was, that was really truly got like the potential of what it could be. 
and that she was truly supportive. And, uh, you know, of course she was almost too supportive. She wanted me to just quit my job and go after it. And I was like, well, slow down. We got to, we got to build this a little slower than that. But, uh, once I got prototypes made and stuff, we went to winter strong and Jess came with me and it was a really nice invitation from another knife maker, Neil Kamamura that invited me to, to forge and just, and, and come out there and, and demonstrate. So you were forging out there in that building, right? Yeah. It's kind of along the right-hand side of the road when you yep. pull through. Yep. And, uh, Neil and I kind of did some demos there and he did a really nice introduction to me and talked about my my accomplishments and stuff as a, as a custom maker. But what was cool is I brought some prototypes that I, that I was already working on for MKC and I showed them around and what people probably have unfortunately never had the opportunity to hang out at a place like that. It was, it was with, uh, you know, probably at that, probably that year, there was probably 80 to a hundred, incredibly accomplished people and not not necessarily from a financial standpoint from a accomplishments of of just hard work paying off and whatever they do so maybe it was a a college football coach maybe it was a college football player uh it could be someone in business um all, all walks of life from you know sornex and bert really has an interesting collection of friends from the sports world which is what comes from their their weightlifting and, and their, their, their fitness, uh, equipment business. Um, but then, but then also from the outdoor world, which is Bert and Pops's passion with hunting. And so there were people from the outdoor industry there as well. And, and also some military, uh, veterans and active duty guys. And so there's this interesting mashup of people, but when you, when you start talking to these people, every single one of them were incredibly accomplished in their, in their particular lives in their field. And, and they, everybody that I kind of talked to about MKC was just like, you can do this, go for it. Like you can build this. And they were very uh, motivating. And, you know, they say you're, you're the, what do they say? You're the average of your five closest friends or whatever. Yeah. Well, when you, when you surround yourself with, 80 or a hundred of those people, uh, you want to elevate yourself and you want to, you know, I, I didn't consider myself to be on that level, even though I, I was pretty accomplished with the custom knife making career. Um, and it just gave me a lot of, a lot of confidence that we could build this brand and, and make it work. And so I, Jess and I came home from there, uh, and that was actually in February of 2020. So when we came home from there, in the next two weeks, the world fell apart with COVID. Uh, and I just, we made a decision. We were not going to take no for an answer. I was going to basically ignore COVID. It had nothing to do with what I was trying to build. And we just kind of went forward building the brand in 2020. And then I didn't quit my full-time job until uh, December 30th of 2020. So that whole year I kind of worked after work and before work you know, building the brand along with my business partner, Brandon, who I met because of Winter Strong as well. Yeah. It's when I heard you tell that story the first time it was, um, it resonated with me because we've, my wife and I have built multiple businesses together and, and sold some of them. But the second one we built, which was one of the biggest ones we had been planning for two years 
and the business was, you know, it was a, a space that we had built out and put a bunch of money into and it was slated to open October of 2008. Uh, and the housing bubble popped about three or four months before that. And it was like, you know, everyone was like, you are insane, but we were pretty much all in at that point. And so, yeah. you know, we kind of did the same thing. We just said, you know what, we're failure is not an option. And we had some background in sales and marketing that I think put us in a position probably above some of the other people we we're competing against. And, and so we just kind of blew open the market and decided to take a much bigger piece of a smaller pie and it worked. But uh, I always have a ton of respect for people that have the courage to do that when it looks like it's not the smart thing to do because they believe in what they're doing. Yeah. And I, I kind of, frankly, and back in 2010, when I got my job for the, with the power company, I'd been making knives for about eight or 10 years, uh, full time. And back then that 08, 09 crisis, uh, if you listen to the news, um, the world was ending and we were going to head into a depression and, Oh yeah. It, it sounded like, like the, everything was just going to tank. It was. And, uh, you know, I had four young kids and I, I wasn't really getting ahead. It felt like, and looking back on it, I think I'd have been just fine and I'd have been totally successful because I was doing pretty well with what I was doing back then. But, um, but I kind of ran from my career at that point and took the safer out with the power company and I wouldn't go back and change any of it because it, it led me to where I am today. But when I was faced with some of that, it really felt similar in 2020 that like the, the world's ending and the economies are going to crash and everything's doomed. Um, and this time it felt it felt so similar to 2020. And this time I was like, I am or it felt similar to 2010. And I said, I told my wife this time I am we are not even watching the news. I, I'm smart decision, completely ignore it. And I've really kept that attitude since I, uh, my, my head's not in the sand, uh, but it's definitely, uh, I, I don't look up and watch the news very often. I just kind of keep a low level of need to know information going through my head. But I, I think uh, so much of that stuff is designed to keep you in front of the TV and keep you scared and keep you, turning the channel on the next day to see what's going on. And it really keeps you from chasing your own dreams and, and it keeps people in a state of fear. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely not easy and it's definitely a little bit crazy, but to, to just jump off and quit your job and start something. But I also didn't do it, you know, in an uncalculated way. I mean, we, you know, I, I did a lot of work for about a year and a half before and after work before I ever decided to do that. It's not like I just decided to change. And that's one thing I see people, you know, they say, well, I'm trying to start my business. I'm trying to do this or that. I don't have time. And it's like, well, when do you get up? It's like, well, I get up at seven. It's like, well, why don't you get up at four thirty or five? And why don't you go to bed at 11? And, you know, when you get off your work at five o'clock at night, you got five, six more hours in your day if you use them wisely and maybe a couple in the morning, that's damn near an eight hour day that you can put in. Um, and when I look back at the people who settled the West, I don't think they were working an eight hour day. <laughs> Hell no, they weren't. You know, they the might've thing... been, they might've been in the dead of winter, uh, you know, <laughs> but I guarantee in the summer they weren't. 
Well, the other thing too that I and I, you know, what I see this a lot more with probably people who are, I don't know, thirty, you know, and younger, maybe a little bit, you know, mid thirties and younger, is this idea that that they want, you know, to be where you are, you know, six months after they start, yeah, uh, you know, and they're not willing to go you know, learn from somebody who knows what they're doing. I mean, that's the, the advice that I've given to every one of my kids is whatever you want to do, get with the best person you can find, create relationships. It doesn't matter how much money you make, figure out how to make it, but go get, you know, underneath somebody's wing that really knows what they're doing and learn. And that there's so much value to that. Like you won't be able to do that on your own for 10 years. What you can accomplish in 12 to 18 months with somebody that knows what they're doing is going to be the foundation for what you want to do for the next 20 years, but no one seems to want to do that anymore. Yeah, no, I agree. And I mean, I, I also think people have to be willing to, to try different jobs and bounce around, you know, the, uh, get different experience. It's funny. Cause uh, you know, I think sometimes even my own kids think like, well, dad, you, you know, you were making knives, you started making knives when you were 11. Um, you know what you were going to do your whole life. And it's like, well, yeah, I was making knives when I was 11. I was also mowing lawns. I was also working my parents' excavation business. And then when I went to college, you know, I basically flunked out of that because the duck hunted too much. And then I went back to working for my parents in their excavation. And then when I moved to Missoula, I worked in the excavation world for a different contractor here in Missoula. Then I became a knife maker. Then I became a welder. I was actually, well, I was actually trying to become a welder for the power company and then switched from that to lineman. And then finally, when I was 39 years old, I switched back to, you know, to starting Montana Knife Company. So the point is, is, you know, it doesn't all happen when you're 25 years old, when you're fresh out of college. And it doesn't all happen in a, in a heartbeat. And even like in the coaching world, uh, you know, you, you, you see guys start in high school and then they go to a JUCO and then they go to division two and they're a special teams coach. And then they're a, a, you know, a line coach. And a lot of these guys don't get a head coaching job until they're 45 years old. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's a few exceptions of superstars that become a head coach when they're in their late twenties. But, uh, you know, that's, that's definitely the exception to the rule. So your, your point is well taken that, young people need to understand that I tell my kids, it's like stacking up a, a big pile of sand. That's, that's, that's 50 feet tall, but you're stacking one grain of sand at a time. It's going to take decades. Yeah. I mean, say I, I completely agree with you because I've done the same thing, right? I, I coached college football for 10 years. Then I went into like, okay, what can I do when I leave that? Well, I learned recruiting is sales. So then I went into medical sales and I learned, sales and marketing and product launching and all those kinds of things. And then took that knowledge with my wife and we used that, you know, to start other businesses, but we could have never have done what we did in our mid thirties. If we hadn't, if I hadn't learned all those things that I did from the time I was 22 in the other positions that I was in and one took me to the next, took me to the next. Um, and so like the grain of sand analogy is a great analogy. It's, it's, you can't fill that thing up you know, right out of the gate, it's going to take time. And, and if you don't understand that, you're going to constantly be frustrated. But if you can accept this is a journey and that every piece of that journey is going to prepare you for the next step, then you're going to be a lot better off. And then you got a chance because you don't feel like you're a failure if you haven't 
made your business successful at 28. Like that's one of the things that I've run into with my oldest son is, you know, he's only 30. Um, but he feels like he should be at this place, yeah. you know? And I'm like, no, like you, you can't, you gotta, like your expectation of yourself is way too high. You've got to just learn and, and, and embrace the process. Yeah. And it seems like when it happens, it happens. It seems like things start to really come together quickly in a hurry, you know, like, uh, what was it in, in 20, well, in 2021, uh, I turned 40 and I, had, I, you know, that was an April, April 1st. And so January 1st, I'd quit my job. So just before I was 40, I literally was quitting my job with no employees, just Brandon and I, no paycheck coming from this company. You know, we didn't take a paycheck for like six months, uh, you know, had probably six months of savings saved up to, to, to try to launch Montana knife company. So at 40 years old, I was really in like, uh, just, just barely starting. And here I am, uh, you know, just a couple years later at 42 years old and we have 25 employees and, and things are growing really well. But you're um, an overnight success, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 30 year overnight success. But the, po the point is, is like, you know, I, I remember that feeling at 30 and, and talking about Montana knife company with my friends and just feeling like, man, it's maybe it's never going to happen. And if you'd have told me at 30 that I wasn't going to start it for 10 more years or nine more years, I'd have probably been pretty discouraged, but I think there's something to be said though, for building that wisdom, uh, making those connections, building your network of friends and, and colleagues and learning different things. And then, when you're finally ready to go, you've, you've actually gotten all the tools, you know? And, and, and I think then, then, you know, if I would have launched Montana knife company when I was 24, uh, even just being old enough to admit that I was, I didn't know everything about like marketing, for example. Yeah. I was actually um, just about to say getting connected to the right people like, and Brandon, which obviously has played a huge, huge part in what y'all have done. Yeah, it became very apparent to me in, in, in a hurry when I was paying him to do some things that that he knew a lot that I didn't know. And I knew that that was there's two parts of a business. You have to make a product and then you have to sell a product. You well, said you met him at Winterstrong. Well, I, I actually was asking those. Uh, I was asking some of Bert's uh, photo guys, uh, photo video guys. I said, I need to find a guy to take some, all I was looking for was the guy to take some pictures. Um, I said, yeah, I need to find a guy up there in Montana that can take some good photos of me and my shop so I can build a website. And it was actually those guys that said, Hey, I, I actually know a guy in Montana and he's really good. And, and it was just that much. They put us in a text. He was two hours from me and I hired him to come down and take some photos. Um, after I got back, um, but, you know, that age or wisdom or whatever you want to call it, lack of an ego to just say to my wife, this guy's really good. I don't know it. I'm going to give him a large percentage of the company because I need because I need his help. And I think he can I think he can help grow this brand. And I and I didn't have the money to pay him uh, what he was worth. So instead, I offered him 
basically, uh, you know, I offered him equity in the company and, and, and I, I actually offered him a substantial amount because I wanted him committed like I was. Right. You know, and I guess I could have been selfish and said, well, geez, that if, if this thing gets big someday, that could be worth millions of dollars. I don't want to give that up. And my point was, is like, well, if his is worth millions of dollars someday, mine will be worth millions of dollars. Right. And instead of trying to keep it all for myself, had I not done that, who knows if we'd even be close to where we are today? You know? Yeah. I mean, the, I will say that the, you know, being in the business to us with other kinds of businesses that have to do those things, the, you know, the mark, the social media, the branding, all the things that y'all are doing on YouTube, on Instagram, they're really not just high quality production, but the concept behind it, the way that, you know, you, you look at those things, the way they're presented uh, is super representative of the brand. I mean, it, it's, it's really seems to me like it really gets the brand across. I mean, it was, it, it hit home when I was looking at it more from the eye of somebody who like, I'm not a producer of that stuff, but I kind of am in the middle of doing some of those things. Um, and it's amazing. What, what is Brandon or what was his background before he joined you? Uh, well, when, when I met him, he was working for the clothing brand flag nor fail, um, here in Montana he was really the marketing kind of genius behind that brand becoming uh, big. And then before that uh, he was in the supplement uh, world kind of helping market, you know, actually kind of going way back after he got out of college, like the GNC type days, um, you know, the protein powders and all that kind of stuff. So that's really kind of his background was in that, that supplement world and then into the clothing and branding type, uh, you know, world. But he had a lot of experience in the digital space, obviously. He did, yeah. So, so his job in all those was marketing, and it was it was ecom and it was email, you know, collection and data stuff, and and uh, you know, it was all directly related to marketing. So it doesn't really, you know, matter what what you're selling. Um, you know, I was able to to educate him on the knife side and provide him with the information that he needs to to do his marketing in a way that that sounds legitimate for knives, but you know, he could sell a snowball to an Eskimo. <laughs> yeah. He does a hell of a job. What the, the, um, the t-shirt that I've got on, which just came out like, I don't know, a few weeks ago, but it's the back of it says risk it all for the brand. What, what does that mean? Yeah. KC? That was really when Brandon and I both quit our jobs. Um, and, you know, frankly, he had kind of quit his job. He was already headed that way because he was starting his own marketing agency. Mm. Um, Good time. But M MKC was uh, almost kind of more uh, going to be somewhat of a client of his at that moment. But then over the next two or three months, like we kept growing and growing. And then all of a sudden he had to kind of stop taking outside, uh, you know, customers on his agency side. And then the more we grew over the next six months, he actually had to stop, start dropping people because Montana Knife Company became all the work that he was doing, you know. Yeah. Um, but that risk at all for the brand was was like both of us, uh, you know, when I quit my job December 30th, it was entirely to build Montana Knife Company, the brand. And 
uh, you know, that brand also kind of relates to a cattle brand. Actually, I guess I'm wearing the hat I see here. Uh, yeah, I got it on the shirt. It's actually, yeah, I see that. Thanks for wearing that. Um, that's, it's meant, meant to look like a cattle brand. And then actually the C on this is, uh, actually meant to look like our tongue, like my forging tongs. Oh, I love that. And, uh, it's also kind of a shout out to farmers and ranchers and, a lot of a lot of farmers and ranchers they risk everything every single year uh for the brand for their cattle brand for their their ranch or their farm that they're on you know a lot of times these guys empty their savings account every spring to buy fertilizer and buy seed and buy fuel yeah all hoping that at the end of the year it's going to pay off but they're literally risking it all uh for the brand that 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 they're that they're putting on their cattle or their horses you know um and, and that's, that's how kind this of company similar got built. to what we did I mean, right that's how the country got built exactly and that's how you're building your your business which is i think that really resonates with people you know especially certain types of people same same kind of people self-reliant people people who are whether they're own their own businesses hunters farmers um i didn't know the tong thing but there was something about the, the just the branding that you do that that felt to me like it resonated back to a lot of my roots, um, you know, with my family farming and those kinds of things. That's like I love that part and 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 how you do such a great job of of making people feel that through the marketing that you do. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. So I, I know you're uh, you're uh, low on sleep. How are you balancing all this stuff, man? I know you got four kids. Are two of them in college and two of them still in high school? Uh, one's in college and okay. then uh, got two in high school now and a, and an eighth grade daughter. Gotcha. Um, yeah, it's uh, not managing the sleep well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, too much travel or just too much work? Just, yeah, work, uh, work and travel. Um, just... We, we also try to stay very connected to our collectors and our customers. So, you know, not only are we trying to make all these moves to grow the brand, I'm also frankly do a lot of research on how to, I'm still learning on how to, to set up a manufacturing facility. The bigger it gets, the more there is to learn, um, hiring people, looking over resumes, uh, considering the different marketing opportunities that are coming in. And then, um, also trying to stay connected to our customers through social media messages. We, we try to answer everything that comes in all the emails, um, doing the podcast, uh, you know, trying to make sure we have a podcast coming out every Monday. Um, and so sleep and fitness has definitely slipped a bit. I'm, I'm actually kind of, well, I've been, I never drink water and I'm actually been drinking on the podcast here. I, uh, I, I'm, making an effort, uh, right now to kind of start getting back in shape. Um, right. The minute I went to do that, I went to pull my bow back on Saturday and man, I did something, my, my shoulder, I actually have an appointment at the doctor here in about an hour. Um, I think oh, I did something it, huh? to my rotator cuff. Yeah. Oh, geez. But, uh, so I went for a run this morning and kind of held my arm cause every time I was bouncing, it hurt, but <laughs> I might not be in Bert's weight room, uh, anytime soon, but, uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a tough balance, but honestly, again, some of that's just time management and excuses. It just got to be better about scheduling in and not allowing other things to bump that out. You know. Yeah, I I 
I made a, a recommitment to that back in December of last year. Um, I had had like three back surgeries in the last six years. Um, kind of struggled with a bunch of stuff. Luckily, I, I found a really good physical therapist finally who helped correct some things. And uh, I've kind of set this thing where I get up every morning at 430 and do my Bible study. And then I'm in the gym by 530. And um, it's helped me a ton just mentally being in a better place, you know, when I start the actual workday. Um, and I think lots of times we feel like, oh, I don't have time for it because I have all these other things going on. But then when you actually make the time for it, you're just in such a better mental place that you're more productive, even if you're giving up an hour in the morning that you would be on email or something like that. Yeah. And you hit the nail on the head. That's a hundred percent. What I, what I tend to do is I tend to wake up like most people. I immediately look at my phone and then, you know, it's two hours later on the West coast, right. So, or on the East coast. So yeah, everybody's you know, rolling if already. If it's six in the morning, um, here it's eight in the morning there and I'm already getting messages. There's already people needing things, wanting things. And so I tend to dive into it and I find myself an hour and a half later, you know, still working. And then it's like, well, now it's seven, seven thirty. employees are showing up to work. And it's like, well, I can't be, I can't be in the gym working out. I need to be out there working with them. So, uh, I think that's pretty typical and it's really just a matter of, setting a harder schedule and abiding by it of, of carving out. Uh, nobody's going to fault anyone for being in the gym from five to six in the morning and not answering the phone. It's just on me to commit to it, you know? Yeah. Well, I know you got a doctor's appointment. I'd say the last thing I just wanted to ask you about was I, I kind of told you that I'm, I've got this, you know, late in the life onset of hunting thing. Um, but yeah, when I was listening to, to you talking to Nick Merrick, he made this comment about, when you're in the mountains, you, you find your soul. Um, I've been out West before and just the, ma the majesty of it, like kind of blew me away, but I've found that as I've gotten older, um, and I, my dad didn't hunt. So, you know, my, my grandpa was a farmer, but he didn't hunt. He just farmed all the time. Um, my brother kind of picked it up on his own, but I was kind of locked into football my whole life. And, um, luckily through some, some good friends, I've, I'm kind of learning all that stuff, but um, there's something about, as I've gotten older, this desire to connect with nature that I was never really plugged into as a kid. Um, and I know you live out in the middle of those mountains. Do you see a lot more people doing this later in life than you did before? Or is it just kind of this, you know, community that I've run into that seems so special? Yeah, definitely. And I don't have numbers to back it up, but it definitely seems like more and more people are getting into it. I definitely, I think, frankly, I think one of the big factors of that is you can't really ignore Joe Rogan's impact. Um, you know, Rogan's a guy that, frankly, is probably the most powerful, most heard voice on the planet, but for sure in our country, um, by far. And he talks about archery hunting and he talks about being out in the wild and stuff a lot. I think that's had a big uh, part of it. Social media, you know, back in the nineties, all the guys that I knew that hunted, uh, they really only 
showed people pictures or talked about it in the bar. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they were in the woods all the time, right? So you really didn't get to, if you weren't tied into that community, you didn't get to see it and see what it offered. Yeah. So if you were, if you were a random guy in South Carolina or North Carolina or wherever, Kentucky or in a wheat field in Kansas, uh, unless you specifically bought a hunting magazine or, or subscribe to a TV show, when were you ever going to be really exposed to hunting out West and mule deer and, and elk? And nowadays with social media, you can just be a random, you could just have a friend say such as yourself. Um, you know, one of your football buddies that's never hunted a day in his life can all of a sudden see what you're doing and be like, what the hell is he doing? And, and start like looking at it, talking to you about it and be exposed to it in a way that that guy probably never would have been before. Um, and then I, I agree. I think, uh, once people get out in those mountains, you know, my wife and I just did a big hike on, on Sunday. Yeah. I saw that. And that was beautiful. Part of me wonders every time we're coming down from that, why we aren't doing it every single weekend. Um, because it's, it's so enjoyable. And frankly, I don't enjoy the gym. I really don't enjoy going and working out in the gym. I, I did more when I was in really good shape and I felt like I was making gains. Uh, <laughs> but when I feel like I'm just a fat piece of shit and I'm in there and I'm pretty much just miserable and I hate myself for getting out of shape. Get rid but of the mirrors. <laughs> but when you're hiking, you're maybe just as miserable physically as far as but there is no misery about it. You're just tired. Your legs are tired, but you're constantly seeing scenery and you're, you're hearing the birds and the fresh air. And, and then it feels like it's a very, it's very hard sometimes to measure that success in the gym. Uh, if I go spend an hour in the gym tomorrow morning and I work as hard as possible, uh, you just kind of have to believe you accomplished something where when we hiked 2000 feet and, elevation gain and you're standing on top of the mountain there's that direct payoff of that hike that's like damn like all that work like got us to right here and there's a there's a direct payoff beyond just the physical fitness part of it and um it's really cool you know just just going out and hiking not even just the hunt and then obviously the hunt adds uh, an incredible amount of difficulty to it. And, and there's, there's, I think it's part of why so many athletes and, and coaches and people like that love to get in a hunting post, uh, career, uh, because there's frankly more failure than there is success. And I think you find that a lot on baseball, you know, diamond football field. Um, you know, you might be a D end and you might try and sack the quarterback, you know, for 80 plays in the entire game and you might not get one sack. Right. Um, it, I guess technically you kind of failed 80 times in a row, you know, um, you're a hall of fame baseball player. If you bat, you know, if you hit 33 out of a hundred balls, mm -hmm. um, means you failed 77 times and, and you, you know, so with hunting, you know, typically the odds are that you're going to go out and you're going to fail quote unquote fail. Um, but boy, once you, once you, once you break through and you, you get that sack or you get that, you know, that animal down with your bow or your rifle, uh, that feeling of success just feels that much better. And, uh, it's just incredible. 
you know? Um, and I think that's why it resonates with people that, especially people that have kind of been in a life of competition and a life of failure and success, you know? Yeah. The, I'm, I'm going to do uh, a, a whitetail hunt up in Southern Illinois this fall. Cause I've got family. It's got big farmland up there, but honestly, when I first <clears throat> got interested in this, I, what I really want to do is elk hunt. I'm not going to do it this fall. Cause my daughter's a senior in high school and she's on a competitive team and she's yeah. busy all fall. And I, I don't want to miss anything of hers, but I'm planning one for fall 24. And so I'm doing like a 10 mile ruck on Saturdays and like one in the middle of the week on top of weight training. But the, the first time I ever saw, and this was on YouTube, but the first time I ever saw an elk bugle with the mountains in the background, I was like, holy shit, I got to freaking do that. You know? Yeah. And then what you said, I started really studying it and learning how freaking hard it is, which made it even more attractive to me. Yeah. It, that there is no greater sound to me in nature than an elk. It's just, especially on a, on a cold morning, you're hiking along and you bugle and you're waiting. And two minutes later, just out of, out of thin air, you hear this bugle off in the distance and it's this beast that's calling back to you, uh, that wants to fight, you know, and <laughs> it's pretty incredible. Um, there's something primal about that, you know, there is. And then, you know, I'd be curious to see how your experience goes, but it's interesting because, you know, I just, I just went hunting with a, you know, I don't know if he'll be in the hall of fame, but he's, he's a high level athlete, you know, Derek, Derek Wolf. That was, uh, yeah, I watched that D lineman, uh, for the Broncos super bowl champion, absolute savage beast of a man. Yeah. guys. And, you know, we went black bear hunting and, you know, quite honestly, the mountains kicked his ass. Um, they kicked all of our asses. Right. But you can only prepare so much with a heavy backpack on and a gym. And all of a sudden you get at a little elevation and, and those mountains, uh, those mountains will, will absolutely crush you. It's just, uh, crawling over logs and, you know, we had a lot of rain. So it was wet conditions. You're slipping, you're falling, um, you're clawing for, you know, for every step. And, uh, it's, it's humbling. That's the other thing about hunting is even if you are really truly physically fit and you go in the mountains and you do well, you still feel insignificant. Like the, the most fit athlete, you know, Cam Haynes type hunter, uh, can spook an elk and that elk can run over three ridges in five minutes and it would take cam three hours to get to that elk, you know, mm -hmm. that that elk just did in five minutes. And we, we watched even like a black bear run up a hillside and then climb a tree. And it's like no human on earth can run up a black, uh, run up a hillside like that in that amount of time and climb a tree with, with really like no effort. Um, it's just, uh, mother nature is pretty incredible. Yeah. I'm actually, you know, as I look at it and look at some of the stuff I've done in the past versus this, I'm, you know, you don't ever want to regret anything, but I, I really am. Uh, I'm sorry that I didn't like figure this out sooner and recognize what it was sooner because it looks like that. And I have talked to people that have done it and that's what they basically told me the same thing. We're like, look, if you go out and get something that's cherry, like, but if you go out there and just make it the first time, you know, and, and just know that you're going to get your ass kicked, 
but yeah, you go out, you know, the mountain's going to challenge you no matter how much you train, it's going to be a lot harder than you think it's going to be. But you know, the whole kind of this ethos that a lot of us, you know, as athletes and hunters have is kind of embracing the suck. They're like, you just got to be there, you know, and just kind of know that the, the, the beauty and the, the, the experience of being there, you know, as long as you're strong enough to just make it through is going to be worth it. And it's a lot like the other thing. Once you're done with it, you're never going to want to do anything else. Yeah. And there's so much knowledge that, uh, a, a, a lot like football, you can be, um, as prepared as you want to be, you can be athletic as you want to be the strongest arm, but really what makes the difference between a, a great quarterback and, and an okay quarterback is you, you could actually argue that most of the okay quarterbacks that are uh, first, second year in the league are actually more physically gifted than all of the old quarterbacks that are actually great. Agreed. But what, what, makes them great is the knowledge that they've got. And, and that's one thing that you just can't really attain when you're sitting at home preparing for a hunt. If you've never hunted in areas, you, you walk up into the mountains and all of a sudden you realize that, gosh, I thought there was going to be water here. The Onyx maps show that there's water here. There's no water. And that all of a sudden your whole entire game plan changes. Like I thought the animals were going to be coming to this little draw for water. Well, where's the closest water? It's like, oh, the closest water is three miles away. Um, you know, well, I didn't bring enough water in my pack to last me for two days because I thought I was going to fill my my Nalgene right here. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, um, <clears throat> where are the bedding areas and where, where does the wind direction come from? And I think that's where a lot of the failure comes from, from new hunters in the beginning is just going into the mountains and kind of learning the terrain and learning how animals move. Um, maybe those animals spend June and July there, uh, but water dries up, feed changes, patterns change, and then they spend September and October in a different place. Um, and that's just, that's just stuff that you have to learn over time. And I think besides the physical fitness part, uh, you know, it's funny. I actually have a buddy of mine that he's kind of an out of shape fat bastard, but he always kills stuff. (laughs) because <laughs> he knows what and, the hell he's doing right yeah and it's kind of like <laughs> tom brady and you know peyton manning couldn't run away from uh anybody you know they couldn't run at all um but they stood in the pocket and kept winning super bowls and you're like <laughs> how the hell does that guy do that right and it's 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 that knowledge you know um, yeah i i feel like um like uh, when i was 20 so I remember when I was a young football coach and I remember being around all these guys that have been doing it forever and thinking, God, how in the hell do you learn that much information? Like, how do you have that kind of knowledge that you can just look at a defense or look at a coverage and figure out how to attack it? Um, But obviously over time you figure that out. And that's, that's how I feel right now with hunting is I know how much I don't know. And I know that the only way you, you really learn that is to be out there. Um, so I know the learning curve is really, really steep, but I think you're, that's, you're filling yeah. that dump, that dump truck with stand <laughs> one pinch at a time. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. You know? Yeah, uh, man. That's, I don't care what you're in. And that's, that's what I try to get across my kids. I don't care if it's, I don't care if it's football. I don't care if it's business, if it's marketing. Um, it, one thing that's always true, pretty much across the board, uh, 
is that if to have any real great level of success, you, you have to one, one pinch of sand at a time, you That's know? Right. Um, and every now and then you'll see somebody come into a professional profession, super young and, and really accomplish great things. But you know, that's the number one draft pick. And let's face it, most of us aren't. <laughs> that, that's right. You know? Well, man, y'all are kicking ass. I really appreciate you taking the time, um, you know, get just jumping on. But I also, you know, the whole reason I started this podcast, honestly, for me, was to get to know people that are just awesome people that, that are doing things that I respect, doing things that, um, that I admire um, and just, you know, increase my circle of, of really good people around me. So I really appreciate you taking a couple, you know, an hour to sit down and talk to me. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you having me on and Bert, uh, Bert's a great friend. Uh, amazing I, I guy. Amazing just guy. A call from him about a half hour ago. So uh, Bert's an amazing guy. And, and I agree with you. I mean, the most enjoyable part of building a brand like this is the people I get to associate with the people I get to be around um it's absolutely my favorite part uh that and doing a little hunting um but uh no i wish you the best of luck with with taking off into the hunting i think it's um i think it's awesome i think a lot of ex-athletes and a lot of ex-military guys really tend to gravitate towards hunting because it's 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 an incredible challenge and both in athletics and in uh, what a lot of our, our veterans have experienced with war, um, someone else has a vote, you know, and in hunting, an animal also gets a vote, you know, yeah. the, the defensive lineman wants a sack in a game, but he's going against somebody that doesn't want him to have a sack. So, uh, you know, there's, it's, it's cool to be engaged in, in a pastime like this, that, you know, you, you don't, you're not in control. Um, you can do everything right. And even at that point, you can do everything right and miss or screw up. You know? <laughs> yeah, um, that's right. Finally get set up for the shot and then whiff, right? Exactly. So uh, it's uh, it's it's a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool pastime. Yeah, it is. Are you going back out to Winter Strong this year? Do you go out there every year? As long as I'm invited. Awesome. Well, then I'll get a chance to meet you. That'll be great. <laughs> awesome. Well, I know you got a doctor's appointment. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Josh. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Keep getting after it with MKC. I just got my Blackfoot last week. That's awesome. Well, I really do appreciate the support. It, was, yeah. uh, it, it means a lot and I appreciate you having me on here. When I get that first buck this fall and I, I start working on it, I'll send you a picture. I can't wait. I can't thanks, wait. Thanks, brother. Have a great right, day, thank man. You. All right. You thanks too. so much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.